Salvation Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. How are y'all doing? All right, so our, our Torah portion this week is Vayakel, which means and assembled. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but if you will string together the names of the Torah portion, you have the story of the entire book. It's pretty cool. We did that, was it last year we did that? Each Torah portion we added to our book. And so by the time we got to the end of a book of Torah, we actually had a summary story of everything that was in it, which made it easy to remember what was in that Torah portion. Uh, but especially like Kitisa, like I said last week, Kitisa is one of the, the prime texts for understanding the resurrection of the dead and the, the gathering of the saints. When you elevate, when you elevate who? The body of Messiah. Where? In the cloud. It's all about that. So you, you have particular Torah portions like Kitisa, Pekude, um, Vayakel. It, it'll give you lots of information about the gathering of the saints. And how do you know that it's accurate? Well, you'll, you'll start reading around about it in Thessalonians and, and Peter and some of these other sources because they had the same background. You know, they, they have a collective body of understanding about these Torah portions. And so those are the clues. And uh, I know it says, and the right to kill the lamb. We're not going to do that. Okay, we're just going to do the four craftsmen today. So last week, we did have when you elevate, and we talked about the Shabbat elevator, right? We're gathering in to get on that Shabbat elevator. You don't even have to push a button. That's great about Shabbat <laughs> elevator. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, but I showed you how there's a contrast. You put two texts together, and often if they seem like they're unrelated, they are either in a positive way or in this way in a negative way because you've got the Shabbat information and then they stick it right next to the golden calf. If you fall down on the job, if you abandon your place on the wall on Shabbat, that leads to idolatry. That's the message. Now we've got this week's portion, which means vayakel. We emphasized the Shabbat a lot last week because the Torah portion did this week, it's going to emphasize the assembly of the body, which is what's happening right now, by the way. And so you follow that. Like I say, these Torah portion titles, because they're based on the text itself, they will narrate to you a story or an understanding. So last week, you learned how to elevate, how to be gathered into the body of Messiah. You get in Shabbat, get your feet in there. Then he'll start working on you. He will start assembling you. How many of you know you can get a group together and it doesn't mean they're organized at all? <laughs> right. So it's going to further instruct us how that process is going to take place. You're going to see Betzalel and Aholiav, and they're going to begin to craft or build the sanctuary. Uh, the tent of meeting, the Mishkan, the Ohel Moed, which is the tent of meeting. The very name of it tells you it has to be where you meet. Right? It's not us getting up on a mountain somewhere, celebrating Shabbat by ourselves to make sure we do it 100% right. You've just violated the very essence of Shabbat when you do that. You're going to have a, a messy mess when you get together. So this week's Torah portion and assembled is going to show us how the spirit of Adonai actually assembled the Israelites in the wilderness. And if you notice in the text, it wasn't just because they were all smart, talented, and gifted people. You can have a group of smart, talented, and gifted people, and you still got chaos because they're just too proud of their talents, skills, and gifts. So the spirit of Adonai has to come in there, and he's going to appoint some people to help bring it and weave it all together. And it goes into detail about the weavings of the, the tabernacle. And this is part of the, the craftsman's work. That's what we're going to see. So we've got, like I said, we've just come out of a, an hour of weaving, brings us in here. And now we have, because there's two Adar months 
this year, you have two months of formation. He started with dirt way back when. He's brought you to the point he needed you, just like bread, just like challah. And then he began to weave that together, and now he is forming the human being. He is preparing to put you into the garden, and those same decisions that were made at each point are going to have to be made again in our lives every year, by the way. So we have two months of formation. We'll keep building. We'll receive the breath as a nation. He will call us as a nation at Passover. He will breathe life into us as a nation. That's when you achieve nationhood. So not only do you smash the idols of Egypt by observing the Passover, you begin to receive the breath of life as a nation. And, and you want to stay on that track because eventually we're going to land at judgment. And we're eventually going to land at an hour of transgression. And we don't want uh, to fall down on that particular month because there's going to be temptation out there to transgress, to lose our place. So it's through the Spirit of God that we're invited to gather together. And as we gather together, as we are skillfully woven together, it's inviting down that indwelling presence. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be any place. The presence isn't. I don't have enough years left in my life to waste it any other place. So we've got craftsmen that are going to arrive on the scene, Balaam Balak. And like those uh, conspirators, what was the prince, the judge, and the, the great men last week, says they're going to weave it together. They're going to have a plan. They're going to publicly declare it. It's not a silent conspiracy. It's a, so you can know it, conspiracy. This, they'll tell you what they're going to do. They'll publish it. And then they're going to start weaving their plan together. At this point, it's pretty easy to see that the Holy One is tying their tails together. They're getting partners that all of a sudden become very awkward because one of the foxes is going to pull this way one's going to pull that way and what happens eventually is they went through the standing grain they went through the stores and what's happening all these plans that the enemy had got burned up because their tails were tied together so when you think you're you're forming a conspiracy and you think you're running something you might find out you've tied your tail to something you don't want to be tied to and he could absolutely empty their war chests, if we want to call it that. He could empty those things out in a moment because of the weird alliances that they've made. But the craftsmen we're concerned with are those who build the sanctuary, who build the body of Messiah. And so these type of craftsmen, if you remember Bitzalel and Aholiab, they were filled with the spirit of Adonai so that they could teach other people. They weren't the only craftsmen, but they were the primary designated ones. And then they could teach you how to weave the way you needed to weave or how to dye the yarns the way they needed to be dyed or how to cut something the way it needed to be cut or molded or whatever. And so um, this teaching aspect, if you think about it, it goes back again or at, in this time, it's going to go forward into the time of Gideon. And I don't know if you remember, it was a time of war. He's pared down his forces to 300. Isn't that right? Only 300, 300 were really prepared to go in the battle. That's all they needed. So they're winning. They're chasing the enemy across the countryside. And their fellow Israelites, they turned up and said, we're tired. We're winning so well. We're tired. We're worn out winning. We need bread. We need water. We need something to sustain us so we can keep chasing them and, and completely destroy this enemy. And the men of Sukkot said, no, we won't. We're not going to risk the fact that they might come back. They would not give them bread and water. And Gideon said, I'll be back. And I will discipline you in some translations is, I will teach you with thorns. And that's what we saw last week about this cons open conspiracy, is that the rabbis say there is difficult to extract yourself from as a thorn from wool. Once you get woven into that system, can you imagine being one of those men of Sukkot and saying, I would like to help? <laughs> when you're surrounded by people of a particular mindset, it's bad to be the one person in town who thinks differently, right? So he's trying to separate us out so that we don't have to be taught 
with thorns. Instead, we can be taught by the craftsman. So I'm not going to uh, reread this for you. This is Exodus 35, 30 through 36, 2. But it goes into detail about the craftsmanship of uh, Aholiav and uh, Betzalel. It mentions more than one that they are craftsmen. We're interested in that. We're interested in these craftsmen because it says everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. Now, we want to be the ones whose hearts are stirred to come do the work. If our hearts are stirred, there will be somebody there to teach us how to do it. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He says, this is the design. And so he supplied us with Yeshua as the craftsman to tell us how it all goes together. Now, he may not give you more information than you need in the moment. Because if you had too much information, you would be out there supervising, right? We do that anyway. So again, that's the, the reference we're using, again, just to be clear where some of this um, prophetic prediction is coming from. It's coming from the Midrash Rabbah for Shir Hashorim, which is the Song of Songs. It's the ultimate prophecy song when you think about it because it tells about our resurrection. It tells about end times. It's not just a love song. It's way more than that. And the, the text they're working here with, so if I refer to something a rabbi said, they're probably commenting to this verse right here, which is, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. It's describing this exclusive relationship that Israel is going to resume with the Holy One at the end of days when the footsteps arrive. Okay, now we're going to skip forward and just review for a second Micah 7, 1 and 2. And we looked at the more of Micah 7. But the idea here is he's missing people. He needs help. Now, does the Holy One actually need our help? No, this is not a, a relationship of equals by any means. But does he want us to help? Did he create us to help? Absolutely. When we fall, out on the, fall down on the job then things aren't being done in the kingdom that should be done. And his complaint here is, he says, I'm like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat. In other words, they've not matured. There's not a first ripe fig, which I crave. Those haven't even matured. They haven't even matured in salvation, much less in righteousness. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. If we think of understanding the end of days as two things fused together, and understanding that the Torah is the eternal word of Adonai, it's alive, it's still alive, and it's still doing what it's purposed to do. But we have to have that understanding of Yeshua. And if we've lost one of those two, we have incomplete vision, and even if we were on the wall, we wouldn't see what we needed to see. We would only see half of what we needed to see. And so separating those brothers was no accident. The adversary had to do that to keep us blind to something that our brother could tell us was coming. What is it? Um, it was the lame man and the blind man teamed up so they could get something done. Uh, until we do that, we are like a lame man and a blind man. You, if you put your resources together, you can move a little bit. But if we're going to arrive at a place where there will be an upright person to call upon, that has to change. And so in this generation, uniquely, since the first, you do have a people who are appreciating the life of the Torah, the everlasting, eternal word, and they're pairing it with their understanding of Yeshua as salvation. If we don't have that, we're weak. We're not ready. We can't stand on a wall very long. The enemy knows where the gaps in the wall are. So now, I mean, he, he makes it clear that because there is nobody to stand in the gap, that he's going to have to raise up his own right arm, in which we know the right arm is Yeshua. He's not going to ever ask anything from us that he hasn't already given us. He gave fire on the altar when they finished this Mishkan, 
miraculous fire came down. They're going to offer their sacrifices, but he's already given them the cattle on the thousand hill and the fire and the altar and everything else. He says, I gave you all of this. I'm only asking back from you what I've already given to you. He never asks from you something he hasn't given to you. So we're, we're not, you know, two courts down when we give something back to the Holy One. It's he gave it to you first. Same thing with the temple. Miraculous fire comes down. He's already provided everything that's necessary. But here's what I wanted to point out. In Micah 7, 2 through 7, which we went over last week, Yeshua is pointing out that he is redefining families. And if you want to follow him, and especially if you want to follow him when you hear his footsteps, you're going to have to take up a sword, and we mean that figuratively, please do not hurt your family. (laughs) For some reason, they wouldn't let me post this on Facebook this morning, so I don't know what they're up to. They might have just seen war and thought it was something Ukrainian-like. At any rate, he says, if you're going to follow me, there's going to be times when you're going to have to exercise the sword. And if you're not willing to have that family redefined, then you might destroy the very bridge that I could create to bring your family in. Does that make sense? This is how they're going to know, because if you're not willing to accept that your father, your mother, your sister, your brothers are those who do the will of him who sent Yeshua, it's only in redefining that that you become that that person, that light that can draw your natural family into the fold you might actually destroy the very bridge if you're not willing to leave them in order to cling to Yeshua. He's saying, this is the way I'm going to bring them back. you got to trust me here. And how many of you have ever had to trust him with your family members? Was it easy? Never easy. Never easy. At any rate, this time that Micah is is associating with a time when you're going to have families split apart, and Yeshua is going to affirm this later as he talks. But it's, there's a curious phrase here. It says, the day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. You say, now wait a minute. We're getting the watchman back up on the wall. We're doing what's right now. We finally get it, and punishment's coming? He says, then their confusion will occur. Would you agree that an intense confusion has entered into the world right now? It's crazy. But you know what? At the very same time, we are ascending the walls. At the very same time, we are going into the breaches in the walls. We are building up those broken places that have been left desolate for 2,000 years. Since the disciples of the disciples passed away, there's been nobody to, to be on those walls or to protect the vineyard from the foxes. And we say, okay, I don't know everything, but I'm willing to get in there and try. And at the point where he raises up people who are willing to let Yeshua's righteousness go before them and his glory be their rear guard, he says at that very moment, when it seems like it's a glorious success, he says, confusion's coming in. I'm going to start the punishment. The wrath will begin at that moment. So if we're saying, what's the sign of the times? We're keeping Torah. And we have not relinquished our firm hold on Yeshua. Some do. Some do. And that's unfortunate. They, they gave up too soon. They gave up too soon. Why? Because confusion will set in at the very same time. And we're all going to get confused in this walk, guys. Just here it comes. So Matthew 10.32, we read this last week. I just want to reiterate it before we get into the anointed one of war. Yeshua says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came to, did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he goes straight into how you're going to have to separate your family. You see, context is everything. You stick two things together, they go together for a reason. So he doesn't want you to think of his coming with a sword separately from your being willing to separate yourself from your family as it concerns the word. And he says, if you love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy. Now, I don't think it means you're not there. 
I don't think it means you've lost your salvation. I think you've just embarked upon a very difficult three and a half years because something apparently does happen at the halfway point. There's a decision place at half a times that Daniel talks about, and it can either be, I'm starting to pull out of this, or I'm beginning to descend into great tribulation. We can make that choice. So let's see what we read here. Revelation 6.3, it says, Another a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. That's what Yeshua just said he was going to do. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. What did the Levites have to do to one another? They slayed their own families with the sword. And again, we are not promoting you slaying your family with the sword, okay? Just so nobody misunderstands. Um, but again, it's the sword of the Spirit. The Word is going to divide you in some cases. And if you don't know where you want to be, then your family will not know where to go. See, we don't know what went through Rahab's mind when she went to talk to her family, but she took a great risk because her family could have said, we're turning you into the king or whoever was in charge of the city. But she says, I've aligned myself with Israel. Tradition says she ended up marrying Joshua. She doesn't know when she takes that message, this is the last call, mom, dad, brothers, sisters. This is the last call, nieces and nephews, you have to come with me to my house. But they believed her. So you just have to go on the assumption that when that day comes, they will believe you because you're making a stand that is so ridiculous, it couldn't be anything other than the truth. And they will feel that impending. See, Rahab tells the Israelites how much they were feared. The Israelites didn't even know they were feared. 40 years in the wilderness, and they're like, oh my goodness, somebody's going to get us. And they're like, oh my goodness, here come the Israelites. It's our perspective that messes us up sometimes. So let's look at the four craftsmen. We've looked at Bezalel and Aholiav, how they built the, the Mishkan, again, representing the body of Messiah. But Zechariah 1.20 says, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns of those who have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Now, if we were just riding, pun included, on the assumption that these four craftsmen were also the riders of the four horses, are the riders of those four horses coming to terrify you? No, that's not what the text says. It's coming to terrify those who have terrified you. Okay, that's the end of your terror. So what is a craftsman? It's chrash. In Hebrew, it's a fabricator of any material, an artificer, carpenter, craftsman, engraver, maker, mason, skillful smith, worker, workman, so forth. Just like Bezalel and Aholiav, they were the chrashim, of the tabernacle. They prepared the place for the presence of Adonai. When we see these four horses go out, it might look like trouble, but at least for the righteous, they are preparing a place for us. Ain't that cool? I can say ain't down here. <laughs> so that's what happens. That's the message from last week. Shabbat. Kitisa. When you elevate, when you gather, he's going to meet you there. His presence will meet you. It's not like you're going to take some steps and there will be nobody there. He'll be right there to meet you. So the, the prerequisite, though, is we need to gather. All right. Again, Shabbat is not keeping Shabbat on a mountain by yourself, so you can do it 100% correct. There's a gathering. Yeshua gathered with people who hated him. He went to the temple who, with people who hated him. Now, they didn't all, but he didn't quit going to the temple because he disagreed with everything that was, not everything, most of the things that were going on. He didn't quit going to the synagogue because people ran him out of the synagogue. He kept going. It says it was his custom, just kept going. How many times would you have to be run out of a congregation before you quit going back? He's like, I'll go to another city. <laughs> I'll just keep going. But the... the 
At the time of Yeshua, a Harash, where he lived in the Galilee, was most likely a stonemason. Uh, it's thought probably that Yeshua and his father worked on uh, Sepphoris, just a few miles away, not far from Nazareth. So a stonemason, you can imagine as the, the disciples are admiring the stones of the temple, like, look at the beauty of these stones, and Yeshua's like, nah, not one going to be left on another. Take it from a craftsman. Take it from a stonemason, what's going to happen here? So let's look at Mark 6.1. And again, placement. What are the things that are placed together here? It says, Yeshua went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. His disciples were with him. Right? So when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Is that what it says? I can't see it. Okay. He began to teach in the synagogue. What did Aholiav and Betzalel do? They taught how to assemble, how to create, fabricate the sanctuary. So Yeshua is doing the same thing. He's teaching in the assembly. He's teaching in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And by what wisdom? What wisdom is this given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? I think we can all agree that what Betzalel and Aholiav were doing were miracles, just based on the text, if you've read it, that it wasn't their own skill. They might have had some skill, but it says it was the Spirit of God that went into them. It was a miraculous thing that they could do all this. One skill, yeah. All those skills, probably not. It had to have been miraculous. And they say, is this not the carpenter? Now, in Greek, that's tecton, but its cognate in Hebrew is chrash. He is a craftsman. So if these craftsmen are seen going out in Zechariah, then there should be some quality of Messiah that would also meet the criteria of a craftsman. And here's what they say. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the Harash, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Shimon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. So he's a craftsman. He's a Harash. He's in the synagogue on the Shabbat. He's teaching the community on Shabbat, and this causes offense. So... As we look forward to the footsteps of Messiah, is it possible that when Messiah is near, that his body might be in the congregation, teaching the Torah, building the body of Messiah, and people begin to take offense? There, there's something about those different things. They're brought together into one context. So Yeshua is a harash. He is a craftsman. He came to build up the walls of Jerusalem because if he predicted they're being thrown down, then of course he's the craftsman who's going to come and rebuild. He won't rebuild on some old system. He's going to make everything new. He's going to build up the walls of the vineyard to keep the foxes out. He's going to raise up people who are able to sit on those walls and make sure the foxes stay out and not with BB guns. But there's, a, there's kind of a sign here. When they, res, when they reject Yeshua on Shabbat, what is happening? He's weaving, he's building the congregation together or attempting to. And they say, no, we're offended. And he says, okay, not one stone left on another. I'm trying to build you up, Jerusalem, and you will not. You're trying to take offense at me. What about the Shabbat is offensive? What about pulling the body together on Shabbat is offensive? What about doing miracles on Shabbat is offensive? If you take offense at that, then I'm going to exile you. I'll send you right back out, and I'll bring you back together again. So we can't be offended to gather with the body and Yeshua the craftsman on Shabbat. Otherwise, we get scattered again. That seems to be a pattern. I don't want to get scattered. I'm already scatterbrained, right? <laughs> Messiah comes, I'm going to get a new brain. So here's what 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says. It talks about that we're going to be gathered together at the sound of the shofar, right? 
And it is believed, again, coming from the, the rabbinic commentary, and this particular one is going to be out of the days of Ah, as it concerns Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And the reason I pull this in is because this is when they have the expectation that the anointed one of war will come. The anointed one of war. And we're going to go over the identity of the four craftsmen here in just a second. But I think it's important to know that they're identifying the anointed one of war, which now we can connect with what Yeshua said, I'm bringing a sword. What is the red horse rider carrying? A sword. He came to take peace from the earth. Yeshua said, I came to take peace from the earth. So I think we've got a pretty good match at this point. It there's been questions as to the identity of the anointed one of war. Yeshua said the, the almost verbatim that I'm going to bring the sword so he would be connected with the anointed one of war. They say that at the Feast of Trumpets, when Messiah arrives, he will arrive and lead the congregation as he gathers them together in the Shema. That'll be the first thing he does because remember, it's one, not many. We have to acknowledge that first. And then at that point, he will resurrect us from the dead with the song of the Aaronic benediction. The, the resurrection acknowledgement of the Shema and then the actual resurrection song. Uh, just one more song of deliverance. Uh, but again, it's thought that Messiah will arrive with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. So... Let's go ahead and read it just to review what Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 4.15. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, terrify? Comfort one another with these words. This is good news. This is the footsteps of Messiah on the mountain. Good news. And again, looking back at the rabbinic sources, referring to this shout, they believe, they don't understand how, but they believe that somehow the days are going to be shortened. Where Daniel's time a times and half a times, they acknowledge this has multiple applications. But they believed during the footsteps of Messiah that what we're looking at, this seven-month period of the feasts, will be shortened to half a time. Which leaves open, we need to be really ready at Passover and Shavuot. Because if, if he were to cut the time, Shavuot is pretty well going to mark the halfway point possibly with a renewal of the covenant in Sinai. You know where it says those standing here and then those who aren't standing here? Possibly we were standing there because we will be standing there again. And once that renewal takes place, remember the Mount of Transfiguration and they're, they're wanting to build Sukkot? They see Elijah, they see Moses, they see Yeshua, and they're like, is it Sukkot time or not? And Yeshua's like, well, you're not really going to have to do that. You might be here already. That's another rabbit trail. The shofar comes from to beautify, shufra. It makes something beautiful. And when you hear the sound of the shofar, you become beautiful. I went and checked in the mirror, and I'm not convinced that it's worked. <laughs> but I'll keep listening to the shofar. And if I see some wrinkles disappearing, then... <laughs> okay, not that kind of beautiful, right? It beautifies you spiritually. So... They say when you hear the shofar blast, it arouses a special sense of love inside of you for your creator because he is preparing you like a bride. So I want to go over these, these different sounds so that you can associate it with this resurrection. And again, these four craftsmen, they are preparing the way for this resurrection. Uh, first of all, you have the tekiah, and that's uh, the sound of judgment. It's to wake you up, right? Wake up, you sleeper. And the assumption is we're all in a spiritual sleep at that point. Some will wake up and some won't. Then you have shevarim, which is kind of a shattering 
sound. That's the sound of harsh judgment, but it's also the sound of your repentance beginning to shatter the judgment. And then you come in with the, the teruah, the shout. This is the sound of battle. The understanding is that with the teruah sound, something is going to happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed at the sound of the Teruah. So if you sit and you listen to the shofar calls at the Feast of Trumpets, and then again 10 days later at Yom HaKippurim, you're to understand that by the time you reach the Teruah, if you have repented, then yes, that is the sound of the battle, but you are being changed in that moment. As you hear that particular shofar sound, you are changed. You will be resurrected. You're, it happens to you every year, whether you realize it or not. But one year, for real, the whole body will be resurrected because you are reconciling with the king at the same time the battle's going on. Now does it make sense why confusion will in, enter in even as the watchmen are ascending the walls? Simultaneously. The worse the world gets, the better it is. And then finally, the tkia dola, that's going to be the great clap or the great strike. And by the way, if, if you do percussion, a lot of those percussion uh, labels are from ancient times. If you do like a percussion tambourine, uh, one of the strikes you do on the tambourine is teka. Doom teka teka, doom teka teka. It's like the tekiah, it comes from the same root. It's a great clap, it's a strike. And when you hear that long teruah call, all has been accepted. You have shattered judgment with your repentance, and now you are being, uh, you are now walking in the light of the divine countenance because you've been resurrected. Okay, and that's just basically, again, a revamp, except um, I took that out of Rabbi Krieger's book, verbatim. want to give her um, credit for that. It gives a little more explanation, but in a nutshell, that's what's going on. But that, that's what you want. You want to hang in there with repentance till you hear that unwavering, consistent, strong kiagdola at the very end. If, if there's no repentance in here, we got problems. We got big problems. One of the things to remember, though, is that um, it's believed, and you can read about this in the days of I think, is that the righteous, when they come to Shavuot, they are renewing that covenant again. And it, they say it's not likely that person is going to change his character completely between Shavuot and the Feast of Trumpets. They say these are the ones who are already... Their names are inscribed, their names are sealed in the Book of Life, and the Feast of Trumpets is more for those who have not. They weren't present at Sinai. They did not present themselves at Sinai at Shavuot. And for those who were asleep during Shavuot, now they're going to hear these shofar calls, and the, the prayer is, please listen and wake up. Because that's when you start saying, may your name be inscribed and sealed in the Book of Life. You've got 10 days from the time you hear that first shofar call until you hear that last kiagdola on Yom HaKippurim to get it right. So if for some reason you suspected that instead of going on the upswing with Messiah at half a time, instead you feel like maybe I've descended into great tribulation with the rest of the world, wake up. It ain't over till it's over. And if you hear that shofar call, repent. Repent before you get down to the tkiagdola, especially because you've got the, um, got the last trump at the Feast of Trumpets and you've got the great trump at Yom HaKippurim. Even though they, they sound like two separate things, they're a pair. They work together. So there has to be change. Now, when we look at the anointed one of war, we're probably talking about the red horse of Revelation. He's going to be the second one. You've got the, the white horse goes out. Um, our, you know, just based on what we're doing in study, it looks like the white horse, of course, is going to be the, the plague. Uh, the red horse, of course, is going to be war. 
that's very present with us right now. And then what's going to follow soon after that will be famine. Because if you look at the way that menorah spins, and I didn't put the graphic on here just for the sake of time, if you look at how a menorah spins, it's like a skater. When they want to spin really fast, they'll pull in tight. On that menorah, if you look at the two closest to Shavuot, those would spin faster in the Garden of Eden. If you look at the rivers of Eden, they'll spin faster. So you get to those seasons, you might feel like the time is going a little bit faster. Uh, But the idea here is, if this is this craftsman, the anointed one of war going out, then he's taking names, literally taking names. Because at Shavuot, you want your name inscribed and sealed in the book of life. You don't want to wait until the Feast of Trumpets. You know, that's for the, the laggers, the, the sluggish ones. They're still asleep. I don't know, maybe they, they took a sleeping pill or something. But they seem oblivious to what's happening because they're not in tune with the feasts. They don't know their Sabbaths. And so they might have to see what's happening to Sabbath keepers in order to appreciate the fact that they need to get their hind in in the Shabbat. And this can be part of the testimony that you give them so that when they hear that shofar, they'll know where to go and what to do. You're not helping them by staying out there with them because then you might find yourself in great tribulation with them trying to convince them that you knew about it all along. They're not going to appreciate that, right? Uh, We can add repentant ones until the great trump at the closing of the gates of Yom HaKippurim. So let's look at the four craftsmen. And this is coming from Shir HaSharim, Midrash Rabbah, uh, 229. And they say, these are the four craftsmen of Zechariah. And I'm going to give you, I think, three different slides with three different ideas. The rabbis don't always agree, and they're not ashamed to say so. They say, we're looking into the text. This is what we make out of the text. So they're going to record everything. There's a general consensus here, though, that the four craftsmen, or the four builders, the four harashim, are Elijah, King Messiah, son of David, Machitzedek, which Machitzedek means king of righteousness, and the anointed one, or the Mashiach of war. He's literally called the Mashiach of war. At any rate, we're going to match typology here. If we look, say, at Machitzedek, king of righteousness, the white horse rider goes out, he's carrying a bow, which again is going to represent hitting the mark of the Torah. Remember, yara means to hit the mark. What's the measure of judgment for everybody? The Torah. And of course, he's going out to conquer and to conquer. But again, he is a king. This guy is wearing a crown, right? Next, we've got the Mashiach of war that we would associate with the red horse because he's carrying a sword. He's an anointed one of war. The third horse is going to be the black horse announcing famine. This is the place where the economy is destroyed so bad that the rabbis say not one penny will be left in a purse. You will be to the point of praying, give us today our daily bread. Because he has to destroy all these systems you depended upon in order to rebuild his. He doesn't have to to build on top of somebody else's idea. He's got his own ideas about social security. And um, the, the reason that we would associate Elijah with this black horse is because that's one thing that's noteworthy about Elijah's ministry was he was given the keys of famine. And then the final one, uh, remember, this is the one who has authority. The pale horse has authority over death. Yeshua was given the keys to death. And so this, we believe, would represent King Messiah. And uh, with his righteousness, again, he's gone forth with his righteousness. He says his righteousness will go before you. His glory will be your rear guard. This is how he performs it with his own arm. All we have to do is get in between. Because it's not our righteousness. We didn't generate it. We're just walking in his. It's his arm we're, right, we're walking in. And if you think it's your righteousness, it, it'd be a very 
you know, unpleasant place to be because he will disabuse you of that notion. He's just letting you wear Yeshua's clothes is what it amounts to, right? And most of the time they feel way too big. So authority is given to the pale horse. We would associate that again with uh, King Messiah Ben David, the son of David. Now, um, here's another little piece of information. Of course, these four craftsmen, they say they will rebuild Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. And we don't have time to say, why did they have to use three things? But there's, there's a reason. In this case, um, it says, Mashiach ben Yosef in the place of the anointed one of war. That's actually the same person. Because if you look at what they expect Mashiach ben Yosef to do, remember, they're not sure if there's two messiahs, more messiahs, one messiah. You get all these ideas. But by substituting Mashiach ben Yosef for the anointed one of war, it's the same job. Because the Mashiach ben Yosef, they say his job will be to go out to gather the exiles in, to the gates of Jerusalem, he will make war with Gog at the gates of Jerusalem and then basically turn the, king, the kingdom over to Mashiach ben David. So Mashiach ben Yosef, who I also believe is Messiah Yeshua, that's just describing a different work that he does, a phase, he's coming out of the Mashiach ben Yosef phase and going into the Mashiach ben David phase of that kingdom. And... Again, this is just some scriptures to look at. This is why I think we're looking at least three of these craftsmen are the same person. Because in Revelation 19.11, it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That would merge the aspects of Malkitzedek, king of righteousness, and the Mashiach of war who wages war. So you see how he's kind of incorporating several different characteristics even to one writer. So it's, we've always seen it as one, two, three, four. It might actually be Yeshua at least three out of those four times. And, and just to reiterate, why do we get confusion? The day we're set on the walls. Well, this is what has to happen. He's calling us up to repair the breaches in the walls. It's signaling his footsteps. At the time of greatest confusion, just like the Tower of Babel, he's going to set apart a people for himself. Again, uh, Isaiah 59.16 and Isaiah 63.5, both of those passages speak to the fact that there has been no one to intercede that he's going to have to use his own arm to bring salvation. He's going to have to use his own righteousness to uphold him. That's why if, if we're his helpers, it's because he's already given us the righteousness we need to be his helpers at this time. He says, I looked, there was no one to help. And I was astonished there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath. See the shift here? At first, it's like, oh, righteousness, that sounds great. Salvation, that sounds wonderful. But we get down here a few chapters later, and he says, okay, now it's wrath. This right arm is going to uphold me with wrath. In other words, the, anoint, words, the anointed one of war is coming. He's coming with a sword. And that's why maturity is especially important at this time. Because, again, the... the, the the tender blossoms, they won't stay on the vine. The unripe figs will fall, just like the stars from the sky. But here's our, here's our clue. Micah 7, 7, even though at the time we step up on the wall, great confusion sets in, he concludes that little section with, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, he's, he's asking us to hear him. But this is that mutual relationship they're talking about. I am a beloved. He is mine. If I call upon him, he will hear me. But if he calls upon me, I will hear him. It's mutual. And another commentator they call Radak, 
sense to this particular verse, here's what the intent of it is. Babylonia, Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen. Babylonia and Rome, the red beast, do not rejoice over me, for though I have fallen into exile, I will yet rise. What do we say? When it looks like the beast is on the rise, that's what it means that Israel is descending. But when we see Israel beginning to ascend, then the beast has to be on the decline. So no matter what we see right now, the beast is declining and we are rising on that Shabbat elevator of Kitisa. We're being woven together, kneaded together. We're being formed into the body of Messiah. At Passover, he's going to breathe life into us. So at least from a Jewish mindset, if we look at these passages in Revelation that refer to Babylon and the red beast, which they equate with Rome, it's explaining to us why the number seven is so important in Revelation. He says, I'm restoring your Sabbaths. My watchmen get up here on these walls. I'm restoring my Sabbath. The big number to focus on in Revelation is not 666. Quit. The number we focus on is seven. He's restoring our Sabbaths. He is one Elohim, and it is his creation, not ours. Let's see. This is just different verses, of course, that talk about our role. We have an obligation at this point. If he's called us into covenant, then we have an obligation, not a choice. You, you understand the difference. If you never agreed to it, you might or might not. But see, once you go to the foot of Mount Sinai and you say, we will do and we will how many times in Revelation does it say, he who has an ear, let him hear? At least seven. I counted seven. So he's giving us a message here. If you have an ear to hear, hear. And if you will hear me, then I will hear you. It's I am my beloved's. He is mine. He's preparing us for this season. So even now as we see the anointed one of war going out, we don't know how it will play out. We do know a famine is coming. We, we don't know exactly how bad and where. We know what the rabbis say. But they say first year, famine here, perhaps not here. Second year, widespread famine. Third year, horrible famine so bad that it'll just be a matter of give us this day our daily bread because you won't have time to worry about anything else. But then by that fourth year, half a time, by the fourth year, half a time, they say for the righteous, now you start to see the redemption and you start pulling up as the world starts descending into great tribulation. So be encouraged and what Paul say? Comfort one another with these words. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.